like to begin by first thanking Sion and the entire group for recording and encouraging me to record some of these showing some of these classes. <clears throat> we are now at October 15th, 2009, and we're going to try to go through our shiur carefully and slowly in order to be as clear as we can in our presentation. Our goal for the next few weeks, appropriately enough, is to study some of the prominent themes of Parashat Bereshit and Sefet Bereshit. No doubt you will not be surprised by many of the themes as they form the core of not only Sefet Bereshit and not only of the entire Torah, but here prominently displayed are the core ideas and values of all Torah and Mitzvot. Everything that we think and believe is based on some of these core ideas found in Parashat Bereshit and Sefer Bereshit. Here, in this parasha, we will be introduced to the critical ideas, ideals, and values that totally and absolutely inform our lives as Jews following Torah Mitzvot. Interestingly, we rarely find that Parashat Bereshit and Sefer Bereshit is used as a source book for the ideas, ideals, and values of Torah and of Judaism. Rather, often, rabbis may be Doresh about the Parashat, but rarely about the ideas and ideals and values. We will focus specifically on the most prominent ideas as they are emphasized in Parashat Bereshit and Sefer Bereshit. But before we begin focusing on these sometimes philosophical notions, we should note how pedagogically perfect Sefer Bereshit and Parashat Bereshit actually are. Let's raise the question. What does it mean to be pedagogically perfect? What constitutes a perfectly pedagogically correct text? First thought would tell us that that which is pedagogically perfect is that which can interest, stimulate, and even inspire the student at whatever level the student is at. Different levels demand different pedagogic techniques. Or, the Torah itself, as a pedagogically perfect book, would want to teach its core values to the very young, to the maturing adult, and certainly for the sophisticated thinker. Equally significant is that the Torah itself has to relate both to the masses as well as to the elite. Torah never exclusively and only concerned itself with the elite, though we have the model of Moshe Rabbeinu as an elite, philosophically oriented person. Still, Torah is always 
concerned about Hamona'am, mass of people. Note that when Moshe is at Har Sinai and the Jewish people are sinning with the golden calf, Borei Olam notes to Moshe Rabbeinu, Lech red kishihed amecha. Go down, your people are self-destructing. And the interesting Midrash comment on that statement is, if the people are self-destructing, what need have I, Hashem says, for you, Moshe? People will count. And yet, though the people count, without a leader, without a Moshe Rabbeinu, the people would obviously go astray. And that's perhaps one of the most important notions of the Heta Egel incident. It's not as much as people went astray and sinned with a golden calf for whatever historical reasons. More significantly is that the people wandered astray for lack of leadership. Moshe leaves. They perceive themselves to be leaderless and they need a leader. They perceive, they intuit, they need a leader. Without a leader, they have no direction, goals, vision or values. And they experience a most horrifying downturn, Heta Egel, because they are leaderless. There we see the interaction in that very narrative between the elite leader who must lead, inspire, stimulate on the one hand, and yet he has no right to go off in a tent by himself. He must always take note of the flock, of the sheep, of the people of Hamona'am. Judaism has a goal. Torah has a goal. The goal, perhaps somewhat simplistically formulated, is to impact, affect, educationally, the entire world. That would be the messianic vision. And yet one can argue that the messianic vision of Torah was not that which was articulated by Yishayan Perekbet in the 8th century for the Kamen era. Rather, from the very beginning, you have a concept of Gan Eden, a concept of the ideal utopian society. And the idea would be to ultimately retrieve that vision, return to that vision, to become, once again, a Gan Eden society. And therefore, the leader must lead towards that goal. Torah must lead towards that goal. And therefore, the value of the leader is inestimable. One must have leadership. On the other hand, to ultimately impact upon the entire world, you need a mass of people, a critical mass of people, a turning point of people. Without that critical mass of people, the leader will only spin his wheels. Leader without people is irrelevant, as Borei Olam tells Moshe. So therefore you need a symbiotic relationship between the leader and Hamona'am, and therefore Torah must be pedagogically perfect in engaging, stimulating, inspiring the leader, the mature, sophisticated, brilliant thinker, the Rabbi Soloveitchik of, of the nation, have to engage, even on the most elementary level, take that elementary text and understand its deeper ideas, formulate its deeper ideas, and communicate its deeper ideas. But in the same context, that story of Gan Eden, Dora Pelaga, Dora Mabul, is going to engage the relatively unsophisticated fourth grader, fifth grader, tenth grader, young adult, 
both have to find something of value in Torah itself. And Torah uses the narrative form in order to engage both the young, the middle-aged, and of course, the more mature thinker. Torah has to engage the masses as it must stimulate and interest the philosophical the philosophically trained elite. All have to find their portion in Torah itself to educate the young while they're young and establish the core values for the young as they're young. As a youngster, one must understand right from wrong is black and white. And as the child matures, he'll understand, begin to understand the gray areas and how to make a distinction between that which is gray and go right, or gray and go left, or gray and go straight ahead. But as a core value, you want the child to grow with the absolute principles. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't be cruel to animals. That there's a God. Master sovereign of the universe. The young should absorb these core values and become part of his personality, so to speak. And as he grows and matures, his ideas about these issues will mature and grow along with him. But the core values cannot be simply taught to a person who is 20 or 25 or 30, but rather, as parents, we want to teach our kids the core values when they're very young, so they become essential building blocks of that child's personality, and therefore will never deviate from them. The Pasuk Mishle comes to mind, you must teach a na'ar, a youngster, when he's very young, according to the level he's able to absorb. And then even as he grows older, he'll never abandon those building blocks or core values of his personality. So therefore, Torah must seek to interest, engage, and stimulate the very young as it hopes it will become a constant companion to the very young as they develop into the young adult, to the adult, to the mature adult, and to the thinker. One of our cardinal sins as people growing and maturing, or as educators, that we don't encourage and stimulate people to grow and become more sophisticated in their ideas about Torah, about Bore Olam, about morality, about ethics, about spirituality, as the person grows and matures. We don't want to have a young adult who is thinking and growing philosophically and psychologically more aware of himself, of others, and yet remains with a third grade understanding of what Torah is all about. That disharmony will result in a child who will, at a certain point, abandon the values of Torah because they don't relate to him. He's now a mature thinker. The goal is to teach the child that as he grows and matures, his ideas about and about the human being and about his moral system have to grow and mature as well. Too often we see people in high school with very unsophisticated, immature ideas about Torah, never having advanced or taught to advance or stimulated to advance their ideas about Torah and mitzvot. But the idea over here for the Torah would be to be pedagogically perfect, to be able to to relate to the very young, to the masses as well, as well as to the elite, as well as to the growing, maturing individual. Good. Torah seeks, to put in a nutshell, 
to educate the laity and rabbinic leaders so that they could share a common world of discourse. Question is, how does one do so? How do you establish a common world of discourse between the untutored and uneducated and that which, and he who is sophisticated and educated? How do you create that work? And the answer, of course, as noted previously, is in the narrative, story form. The narrative can bring together both the very young and the very old, as well as the masses, as well as the sophisticated teacher. All could share in that world of narrative. And therefore, the book of Bereshit, our most profound ideas about God, man, and their interaction, is presented in narrative form. Ben Aedin, Kain and Hevel, Dora Pelagar, Dor Hamabul, the entire narrative of Avraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, their trials and tribulations, choices that they made, are all there not to be only understood historically, not to be understood only as a narrative, but rather to serve as a source book, as a textbook of ideas, ideals, and values. We raise the question, what would you do if Borei Olam told you to sacrifice and offer your son? Abraham had a choice to make. What would you do if you left the land of Canaan after God has promised to give you that land and then went to Egypt and now you're faced with a moral dilemma? Here Abraham knows that he's entering into a difficult situation. If he notes to the Egyptians that this elegant, dignified, gracious woman known as Sarah is his wife, He's concerned they may kill him and take her into the king's harem. She'd be a glorious addition to the king of Egypt, on the one hand. On the other hand, if he engaged in a lie, though he's been taught and knows that it's inappropriate to lie, but he engaged in that lie, then they will give me life because of you, I'm your brother, They'll give me life, and I'll become enriched by it. Not that the enrichment was of concern to Abraham necessarily, but rather life was of primary importance. And therefore, he chooses, rather than risk saying that he is Sarah's husband and risking his life, he tells her, please, carry out this drama, though false. Say, please, that you are my sister. As, as a result, Abraham lives, but there's a consequence, whether foreseen or not. Now, Sarah, while Abraham lives, is taken into the king's harem. And one may raise the question, why didn't Abraham trust in Borei Olam to protect him? Does not do so. Perhaps you may argue that he didn't know enough about Borei Olam at that point in time to even trust Borei Olam that he would live despite telling the truth. In any case, Abraham, in that morally precarious situation, chooses to lie. He lives, takes to the king's harem, and then Abraham learns that Hashgaha, Borei Olam, protects him and her, and all's well that ends well. Similarly, you have a very comparable narrative to Yitzhak and Avimelech. And each one of these narratives 
again, are not taught simply because they are history and not conveyed simply because they are narratives, but rather because they all present to us life-like situations that challenge the biblical patriarchs and have to respond in one way or another. We learn from their correct decisions and in some cases from their incorrect decisions. Ramban is one who unusually is unusually precise in pointing out some of the foibles and flaws of the personalities of the forefathers. Whether it's Avraham, where Ramban says that he transgressed regarding Ishmael and throwing Hagar out of his house in that particular context, or in leaving it its Canaan to begin with, Ramban sees these two events as having been missteps by Abraham, and we learn from their missteps as well. All to teach us the value of the right moral decisions, whatever it may be, as well as the right spiritual decisions, whatever it may be. In one particular interesting case, we find where the Oven is challenged in a very intense fashion, where after Rahel passes away, and the Uven known, knowing that his mother Leah, Kisuno Ahi, was hated by Yaakov, understandably so. He was fooled, giving the love that he had for Rahel to Leah inappropriately, fooled by Lavan. And the Pasuk says that Leah was hated for that, for this. Leah was hated for this. So the Uven is willing to live with this scenario. But once Rahel passed away, and it seems that Yaakov is going to transfer the love he felt for Rahel to the maidservant, to the Pilegish of Rahel, namely Bilha. And Reuven takes matters into his own hands. According to the Peshat, the Pasuk means one thing, according to the Rash, something else, check Rashi out on that Pasuk, either which way. Reuven is not going to allow his mother Leah to be compromised. Her dignity cannot be, cannot be disgraced by Bilha. And therefore, Reuven takes matters into his own hands and willing to sacrifice his Bechorah for that, one way or the other. And he wants to make sure that Leah gets proper respect, dignity, and attention now that Rachel has passed on. But it was a difficult moral challenge. Does he engage Bilha or does he allow the events to unfold on their own? Reuven chooses to take action and yet pays the ultimate price in Yaakov's dying words of instruction to Reuven. Here Reuven, years, decades later, suffers the condemnation of Yaakov, what he did. And yet, if you to ask me, if you to ask Reuven, I believe, he would, to his dying day, believe that did that which is right to protect the dignity of his mother. And we could raise the same question, would not all of us act similarly, in whichever context it may be, to protect the dignity of our mother? And to the contrary, if we were to not act thusly, how would we feel about ourselves if we allowed our mothers to be de-dignified by the maidservant. So again, a narrative, a context which teaches us about the ideas, ideals, and values, what's morally right, morally wrong, that our forefathers 
the patriarchs had to engage in. And there are multiple narratives not to be studied exclusively for their historical value, but rather because they serve as signposts for us how to live life properly and spiritually. So now let's go to the next step. Let's begin. What is the most important idea of, let's say, Parashat Bereshit, of Sefer Bereshit, and of Torah in general? Well, one would have to take note that it's Bore Olam, God, and that God is the creator of heaven and earth. The opening line of Bereshit is, of course, very instructive. Bereshit bara Elohim et Those few words of that first pasuk tells it all. As a Jewish person, one must be fully aware of a master, sovereign, creator of the universe. And what are the implications of that verse? That that Bori Olam has complete mastery and sovereignty over the total natural order. Unlike Spinoza's Dios et Natura, God is nature, known as pantheism. And unlike the pagan worldview, which sees God or the gods as subservient to the primeval chaos, to natural order, the gods are subservient to the natural order, we teach that Borei Olam is sovereign, master, creator, king, if you will, over his created natural order. At that point in time, when Torah is given, 1280 before the common era, it was a radical doctrine. Unknown in the history of the world at that point in time. Nobody at that point in time proclaimed God to be above and beyond or the creator of the natural order. Ancient pagan man cannot conceive of a God who is the creator of the natural order. The natural order for the pagan man simply was, and the gods emerged from that chaotic natural order. Any comparison with any of the comparative ancient Near Eastern literature, and if one were to read their creation epics, you would see how extraordinarily philosophically different our rendition of the beginning is from their rendition of the beginning itself. God can do anything and everything that He pleases Master. Here, in the opening line of Bereshit, the optative word, word would be bara, creator, therefore sovereign. Interestingly, we are not told, as the pagan literature tells us, anything about the essence or nature of the Creator in of Himself. Apparently, it's not important. We would all love to know what is the essence of Borei Olam. Yet, we're not told anything about Borei Olam. Rather, who He is unfolds as the narrative unfolds. We are first taught that Borei Olam is a Borei. He is the creator of the natural order. All natural order is subservient to His will. Vayom Elohim, God speaks, in whatever sense that's meant, and it was. Vayom Elohim, Yi'or, Vayi'or. The natural order must respond without question, without challenge, to the commands of Borei Olam. So here we see 
Bore Olam as Bore Olam, as well as Metzaveh. And of course, that will take on a much more prominent role when we come to the creation of Adam and Chava. There too, we find Bore Olam as a Metzaveh. But first, we are not told, again, any of the prehistory of God, anything about the essence of God, as we are in the pagan literature. All we're simply told about Borei Olam is he is Borei Olam. Interestingly enough, it takes to the very end of the book of Shemot to understand why we are not told about the essence of Borei Olam. And mainly because, as Moshe finds out, much to his dismay, Man who is limited, finite, cannot understand that which is infinite, beyond all understanding. We conceptualize and we utilize words. Borei Olam is above and beyond conceptualization, above and beyond verbal expression or description. Nothing that we can say, think, can encapsulate, can formulate, can define who or what God is. We have no clue other than simply to say, at this point, is that Borei Olam is the Creator. Man is limited, God is unlimited. And therefore, man can only know about God what God chooses to reveal about himself to man. Interestingly, this absolute statement about God's unknowability did not stop the philosophers from philosophizing or the Kabbalists from presenting a Kabbalistic understanding as to what God is, especially Kabbalah. Kabbalah has a lot to say about what God is and how God operates and through the Sefirot and Luriana Kabbalah and so on. But despite the statement of Loi Adam Bahai, both the philosophers, the Rambam, Murein Vuchim, Ramban in his commentary, all speak about aspects of what God is and what God requires of us. The latter is not surprising. Yes, that's clear Torah. But to speak about God as the essential oneness of what God's all about, the Ehad aspect of God, as Chavot Levot speak about in his last chapter is interesting because Torah doesn't really tell us anything certainly not in Bereshit about that aspect of what God is but the philosophers believe that utilizing their reason they can come to certain conclusions about what God is and what God is not certainly what Rambam spends many of the chapters describe what God is not negative theology known as and only about attributes of action no attributes essential or core to what God is other than the oneness, uniqueness, aloneness of what God is so the philosophers believe that reason can give us some ideas above and beyond what Torah tells us but okay going forward at least we know one can confidently assert that we cannot know from Torah's point of view we can only know what God chooses to reveal to us about His being. A fascinating question would be, could God, who is omnipotent and do all, reveal to us Himself, His essential core, if He chooses? When God says, Lo 
Man cannot comprehend or see me and live. Does that mean because man is intrinsically limited and therefore cannot do so? But that if God chose to create a man who is unlimited and thereby understand God, could that be the case? Or is God limited in that he cannot make man more than man? That's equivalent to the famous philosophical question. Can God create a stone that he cannot lift? If he's omnipotent, do all that he can do, then he can. He should be able to create a stone. But a stone that he can't lift? If he can't lift a stone, then he's not omnipotent. That philosophical conundrum, perplexing problem, has stymied many philosophers. Of course, the answer is to be resolved in that particular question, that it's a question of philosophy of language. Our language is limited and cannot describe what God is. But could God create a language that describes what God is? Just because we don't have the language doesn't mean that God cannot create the language. Or is God limited that He cannot create a language that man can use in order to describe the essential core of God? Fascinating question, but not for now. Now, of course, there is very much more to say and not say about what Borei Olam is and what He does. But Torah limits our focus in Bereshit to not really fully discuss all about God, or even all about the secrets of creation. It's very instructive to compare the commentary of Rashi and Amban on the opening words of Bereshit. Whereas Rashi is not concerned at all philosophically about all these philosophical issues or the ideas about Bereshit. Rashi is concerned about why even talk about Bereshit whatsoever. Rashi tells us over here, Torah should have begun with Shemot Yud Bet, the first mitzvah. Torah is really all about mitzvah. Torah is not about speculation or philosophy. And there's no need to have all of these chapters throughout Bereshit and throughout the first 11 chapters of Shemot telling us all about God and creation and redemption. We don't need that. All we really need is about mitzvot. Do the mitzvot. That's the entire sum total of what Torah is really all about. And then she has to come up with an answer. Well, we do have Bereshit. The case of Motaulam, the nations of the world challenge us about why we have the right to conquer land. Israel, the answer is God created the land, that God, for therefore God can give it to us, take it from them, etc. And of course, that's to be seen against the backdrop of the Crusades, who the Christians were going ahead to wrest the Holy Land from the Muslims, and therefore does she want to make the statement that people were obviously thinking about in, in his historical context, that what about us? It's really our land. Why are the Christians involved? Why are the Muslims involved? It's really ours. And she says, yes, eventually the land will come back to you. God takes, God gives. That's the history of the land of Israel. So Rashi's interest is really social and political. Ramban challenges that statement and says, No, what do you mean Rashi? Of course we need to know all of these ideas and concepts of ours about Bereshit. Without it, the person is kofed ba'ikah. You must have this book of Bereshit. Ramban answers the question, says, Really? Rashi's right. These ideas are so profound and so difficult that we don't get a great sense of them from reading the text itself. And therefore, if you're going to give a truncated version of what Bereshit is all about and the, how creation took place, better not to do it. That's what Rashi is saying. Better not to do it. So Ramban defends Rashi and says, I understand why he doesn't want to have all this. Because it's really only a in, inappropriate, one might say, summary of what took place, which actually misleads. It's not what really took place in the Kabbalistic sense or in the philosophical sense of creation. And all the narratives are very difficult to understand in the beginning of the book of Bereshit. So why have it all? It just raises more questions than it actually answers. So Ramban, of course, tries to answer that question as to what we gain from this kind of summary of Bereshit, which is not fully, completely, totally accurate. And Ramban is leading the way for his 
view of Torah interpretation as to why those perakim are essential even though really, from Rashi's point of view at least, one could just simply summarize all of them with the statement of Ten Commandments about Bereshit, and that's all you need to know. That's the Ramban's view of it. But Ramban says, no, we need more than that, and therefore we have all of Bereshit. So really there's much more to focus on regarding Borei Olam, and as we go along we will speak more about God the Creator, God the Revealer, God the Commander, God the Redeemer, down the road. But here, in the opening chapter of Bereshit, Torah's most important and significant teachings is not about the essence and the core and the history of Hashem Himself. Torah only tells us about what we need to know limitedly about Borei Olam because really Torah's focal point, of course, is the human being. It's the human being that ultimately has to work towards redemption. And here, Torah will focus on the creation of Adam and Chava, or principally Adam, who included Chava, but not in Perek Bet. That's something to speak about at length. Rabbi Soloveitchik speaks about that at length in Lonely Man of Faith. Required reading. One should read that opening chapter of Rabbi work to give us a very good understanding as to what Bereshit Alf and Bet are really all about. But here, we now have to spend some time and focus on that most famous of Pesukim, Perek Aleph, Pesuk Vav and Kafzayin, wherein mankind, man and woman equally so, are given a distinctive characteristic known as having been created in Tzelem Elohim, in the divine image, which of course is not to imply that God has a physical image. This Morena Nebuchim, part 1, chapters 1 and 2 deal with. It's not that God has an image or a form. No, it's rather that we want to give man a distinctive quality, character trait, above and beyond the created order. And we see this in the very opening line, Na'aseh Adam Moteno. Adam is the only part of God's creation that is preceded by forethought and that has a plural na'ase adam giving man a distinctiveness that no other part of the created world order has. Won't you take note of that? And of course, this notion of Tzedem Elohim, man as distinctive above and beyond all of the created order forms our basic philosophy of what man actually is. We've given this to the world, yet world civilization is not fully aware of how important or that it actually has a Judaic root in it. It's what defines civilized society, and certainly Western civilized society, is the base of all Western culture. And yet, sadly, few recognize what a gift this biblical idea is to the world. Interesting question is that which is so obvious to us that man's creating in Lukim and that all civilized people recognize why is the source of that idea never rooted in Torah in the Bible itself. Nevertheless, let us try to work our way through some of the 
profound implications of what it means to be created in Selim Elohim and highly recommended highly recommended is Irving Greenberg's writings on the subject called In His Image very nice work which describes and expatiates and expounds expands on the idea of Simbukim and one should note as well that Rabbi Greenberg says that much of what he has learned about this is taken from Rabbi Belkin Samuel Belkin's book called In His Image as well and both wonderful, fascinating works that expands fully and completely on the concept of Tzernamilokim. Different, though. Roy Belkin sees how this idea works its way halakhically, Talmudically, through many sugyot and shas, and why halakha decides certain issues because of Tzernamilokim. One might just simply point to the Gemara, which talks about Kavod HaBeriyot, because man's created in the image of God, therefore one must show absolute respect for that person called man. And even one might take note of how Yosef has a Teshuvah, fasting Teshuvah, on Kavod HaBeriyot, where in, if you're invited to Sebet, let's say, and you don't know if the meat is glad kosher or regular kosher, and you're hesitating to eat the meat because you're not sure you're glad, and it's, maybe it's only kosher and not glad kosher, and if you ask, you may insult the host. Chamod makes the point that to eat the meat, though it's not glad, but it is, of course, kosher, because of Kavod HaBeriyot. You don't want to embarrass and shame the host. And in all kinds of different contexts, Rishonim and Aharim all speak about this notion of Kavod Beriot, all rooted in Selim Elohim. So that becomes a basis of much of Halacha, as expressed in all the Shulot Shavuot, as expressed by Rabbi Belkin in his work in his image. But Rabbi Greenberg as well is able to expand on it more philosophically, not halakhically, but philosophically, in different directions. So these two works really are able to encapsulate what in his image is all about, what Selim Elohim really means. Now, next class, we will briefly touch upon this notion. I know that most of those who are listening to our discussion have had many years of me expanding upon that notion, and I was profoundly influenced by the above authors. And much of what I have to say about it is rooted in what they've said about it. Nevertheless, we'll just summarize some of those principles and then go on to other themes, ideas, and concepts of the book of Bereshit, and in particular, Sefer Bereshit. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.